Jason has started us really on the road of study in Luke Acts. It's a great start. If you're going to talk about the Acts of the Apostles, you really need to start with the Gospel of Luke. And it's kind of interesting because Paul gets credit a lot, I think, for writing the most in the New Testament. He has 13 letters. It's roughly 24% of the New Testament. But Luke Acts is 29% of the New Testament. We need to really kind of begin to pay attention to the gospel and where it leads us. I think we're kind of privileged to be in the, in the middle of experiencing and expressing a life of worship through witness. The Lord has given us a gift. He's given us the gospel. He's given us the kingdom. It's an inheritance. And so the one we call Lord, the one who has redeemed us, the one who has renewed us, the one who brings us together, is the one who gives us life. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. <clears throat> Jason pointed us and camped us in the fourth chapter of Luke. It's a programmatic passage. It's where Luke gives his mission statement. It's, it's where Luke gives his purpose. And so Luke comes to the synagogue on the Sabbath in his hometown of Nazareth. And he declares his purpose to be one of release. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, not just to the poverty stricken, but to the marginalized, to the outcast, to the ones who have no sense of status or worth or being, to the beggar, to the lame, to the blind, even to a Samaritan, although we don't really know that yet. And Jesus continues, he says, he, he has sent me to bring release to the captives, to the oppressed, to bring recovery of sight to the blind, not just the physically blind, but the spiritually blind as well. And he has sent me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus gives a proclamation of release, and we, we think of it very often in release from but it's so much more than that. Oh yeah, oh, it's, it's released from, it's, it's released from the barriers that have separated us from God and have separated us from each other. And, and that's tremendously important. But it's also released too. It's released back to productive service in your physical community and in the community that we call the fellowship of the way of Christ. It's a release to worth, dignity, and value. As a renewed human, not just a renewed Jew, not just a renewed Gentile, but a renewed human. It's a release to renewed service. It's a release to shalom, peace, wholeness of being that comes as a consequence of being right with God and right with each other. So it is indeed an event and an activity of release, but it is release from and release to. 
And as we approach our text, I want to give you just a quick little snippet of backdrop. Because the framework for what we're about to study gives us a picture of two ages. There is the age that Paul would call the evil age, the current age. And it is the age of Satan. It is the age that is characterized by sin and sickness and demon possession and evil men triumphing. But there is an age to come. Jesus will speak of it. Paul will call it the age of the new creation. It is the age of the kingdom. And it's going to be a reverse of what we see and what we experience and what we feel. It is characterized by the forgiveness of sins, which really was, in the Jewish mindset, the precursor for the end of exile. It's characterized by health. It's characterized by healing. It's characterized by the presence of the spirit in power. It's characterized by justice and peace. The two ages are not just periods in history. They're not temporal. They're spatial. They're contending orbs of power or spheres of influence. And they seek domination. They seek control over all of creation. So we're going to see that the lawyer, as we approach our text, has an understanding of end times. It comes really as a consequence of what he has heard from the prophets. In a broad sense, it's, it's a monster theological picture that speaks of a new heaven and new earth. Think of Isaiah chapter 66. It refers to a time in the, in, in the future when, when this earth is going to be restored and it's going to be renewed. And heaven and earth will once again be reunited. And at at that time, all things and people are going to be reconciled to God and to each other. This age to come, in the lawyer's mind, really arrives on earth to bring God's justice, to bring God's peace, to bring God's healing to a world that cries out and groans in its futility. This peace is going to come in the person of a righteous king. And in the lawyer's mind, he's going to deliver Israel's poor. He's going to deliver Israel's needy. He's going to crush the oppressor. And needless to say, in the lawyer's mind, that is Rome. In the lawyer's mind, this is probably going to be a one-stage event. And so if you were to sum it up, the lawyer has this kind of three interlocking strands in his head about what the end time is. The first is that Israel is going to be set free. It's going to be set free from the domination of pagan overlords. The second is that Israel's God, perhaps through the agency of his Messiah, is going to become not just the ruler of Israel, but the ruler of the whole world. And he's going to bring to birth this new reign of justice and peace. And third, in the lawyer's mind, God's own presence is going to come and dwell with his people. It's going to enable and empower them to worship him through earthly service, fully and truly. Now Jesus also speaks of the new age. But he speaks of it a little more broadly. 
He speaks of it in terms of cosmic regeneration. And I think in Jesus' portrayal, there is, yes, a renewed, redeemed creation that is going to emerge. But in Jesus, as he reveals it to Paul, it's going to come in two stages. The first stage is going to be this renewal or rebirth of the whole human species. The second stage is going to be this reconciliation of all creation. And at that point, then, all the animosities and all the barriers to righteous living are going to be removed. This, this thin space that exists between heaven and earth is going to be no more. It's not going to come through destruction. It's going to come through reunification. In Jesus' mind, God's creation is not finished, nor will it be abandoned. In his worldview, it's being redemptively renewed and reshaped, and he, along with the Spirit, are agents of that redemption. So what is the purpose of the, of the human in all of this? Well, I think from the very beginning, we get this picture. The picture is one that humankind, humankind is created to be an image bearer of the living God. He's to use words, the same creative force that, that God used to bring all of everything that we see into creation. And he's to use, or she is to use, their innate intelligence to bring wise ordering to all of this world. And how do you do that? Well, very simply, you foster harmonious interdependence where all parks all parts work together for the good of the whole. One writer describes what it means to be a bearer of the image of God this way. Think of yourselves as a midway creature. You're not a beast of the field. You're not a heavenly being. You're kind of something in between. But that something in between is tremendously important because in communion with God, we're supposed to listen to God. We're supposed to then pass on God's intended wise rule to ensure proper harmonious function. And then we then return back to God. Something tremendously powerful. A conflict-free, fully connected set of parts at peace, whole, one with God and with each other. Well, there's another way to think of yourself as an image bearer of God, and it's kind of my favorite. It's, it's the image of the angled mirror. So again, we come forth in communion with God. And as a mirror, we then reflect the character of a God's love, his mercy, his justice, his compassion. We reflect it back onto the earth. We reflect it back onto the rest of creation. And, and then as a consequence, what we do is reflect back up to God, a creation at peace, a creation where all parts are working together for the good of all. As an angled mirror, we, we, we can reflect God's grace in the form of his caring love and in the restorative justice that is necessary when chaos ensues. 
And then we can return creation's gratitude back to God in the form of praise. And what kind of gratitude is that? It's the praise of a world that is in healing. A world that is completely healed as a consequence of human word and touch. I think that's a scriptural view of worship. I think worship is best understood this way. It is a human heart on bended knee before its beloved. And in so doing, we represent the essence of who God is. Humbly, we return back to God the wholeness of being. In my mind, this describes life. Life in the kingdom. Life as it was always intended to be. And that brings me really to our text today. Look at your paper. It comes from Luke 10. It's found in verses 25 through 42. Part of the title is the parable of the Good Samaritan. But really, it's the question that frames it that we really want to deal with. In Luke 10, starting in verse 25, we hear these words. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what is written in the law? What do you read there? Or listen to it this way. What is written in the law? How do you understand it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, Who is my neighbor? let's back up for a second. If I were taking notes, I would circle the form of address to Jesus. The lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher is how he calls him. And then I would look at the question very carefully. What must I do to inherit eternal life? If you're like me and you have been raised to believe that eternal life is synonymous with going to heaven when you die, I respectfully suggest that's not what it means, at least not to the lawyer. The words themselves are life of the age, life of the new age. So the lawyer is essentially beginning to position himself, thinking of, I have a privileged position where I am now, how can I basically set myself up so that in the new age, I can enjoy a similar position? And then we hit this little word, do. And the more I read it, the more I realized, oh me. There is a world of difference between the lawyer's understanding of the word do and Jesus' understanding of the word do. Well, yes, it means doing right. It is synonymous with keeping the commands. But what must I do to inherit eternal life, to inherit the life of the age to come? And, and let me suggest this. The lawyer is coming at this from an entirely different perspective. 
He is shaped by the tradition of the elders. The basis for his understanding of doing comes from this idea of rule and regulation. It is by obligation, it is by duty. It embraces a methodology of division. It embraces a methodology of separation, of isolation, of exclusion, of boundaries. That's his idea of doing. It's works-oriented. I do right, I'm blessed. I do wrong, I'm cursed. I'm punished. I do enough right, I earn my proper position as righteous before God. So righteousness, at least in the lawyer's mind, is transactional. I'm going to earn God's favor one way or the other. Worship is kind of a parts approach. It's the rituals of the temple. It's sacrificial. It's this idea that I'm going to take my cue from that which I have always done. And so the lawyer is taking his cue from Moses. The lawyer has built fences. The lawyer has defined rules. The lawyer has built rule upon rule upon rule upon rule. And now we get Jesus' idea of doing. It's very different. Because Jesus is not shaped by Moses. Jesus' worldview is shaped by the prophets. The law is holy. Oh yeah, the law is holy. You keep the law by doing. But what do you do? Jesus will look at the prophets, I mean look at the Pharisees, and he'll look at the lawyers, and he'll say, you do, you keep the little things in the law, you tie this and you tie that, you mint and dill and cumin, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law. And what are the weightier matters of the law? Justice, mercy, faithfulness, walking humbly before your God. And when he's accused of eating with tax collectors and sinners, Jesus responds, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Taken right out of Hosea 6.6. So Jesus' basis of understanding of his righteousness with God is essentially relational. Jesus' best understanding of doing comes from being. You become a part of a proper family lineage. And oh yes, you can do. But if you live life by doing, if you live life by the way of the lawyer, let me suggest that you're going to have problems. The lawyer's question is very simple. What must I do to position myself to earn my rightful, entitled position of privilege and power in the next generation? And I want to do it by setting boundaries. I want to do it by setting restrictions. But here's the problem with that. Anytime you live by a rule, you can always find another rule to contradict it. In Mark 7, you have this wonderful little scene where, where Jesus is admonishing the Pharisees and the scribes. And he says, you have a commandment to honor your father and your mother. Honoring is not simply respecting. Honoring is also financially supporting. You have this commandment, and yet you also 
say, well, I would love to do that, but I have pronounced korban on this. In other words, I have devoted this to God. And so you negate the rule that says you really need to take care of your parents because you apply another rule on top of it to get your own way. There's another way you fail. Paul will bring it up really in, in the seventh chapter of Romans. Because when you hear the rule, for example, of thou shalt not covet, you think to yourself, hmm, hadn't really thought about coveting. That sounds like something I might want to try. And it awakens a desire in your heart. So what does the rule do? It just goes by the boards. Life by rule. Life by obligation. Life by duty is doomed to failure. But there's a more sinister underbelly to it. You can do what's right and still have a hardened heart. Because sometimes you just crust it over. And the reality was, at least in in Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees and with the scribes, He knew that their heart was not in it. It was not soft. Jesus' approach is very different. His is a heart on bended knee before its beloved. Totally devoted. Totally softened. So what do I do to inherit the life of the age? The lawyer is thinking doing in terms of obligation. He's thinking doing in terms of restriction. He's thinking doing in terms of boundary. And he's going to betray it in his next conversation. Jesus knows this. So he asks him two questions. What's the law say? What what is written? And then the kicker is, what do you read there? How? Do you understand it? And, and the lawyer gives a great answer. I mean, he could have answered all sorts of ways. He could have said, Sabbath keeping, that's it. Purity system, that's keeping. But that's not what he says. He goes to the heart of the matter and he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, You have given the right answer. Do this and you'll have life in the age and then the lawyer comes back and says well okay so who is my neighbor and Luke's mastery pours forth Luke gives us two stories not just the one now I want you to realize the connection between the Good Samaritan and the story of Martha and Mary. Remember the question. The question begins with love of God with a full heart, and then it morphs down into the answer that says, love your neighbor as yourself. Luke is going to now draw us an illustration of the second part of that. 
with the Good Samaritan. Now, if you were taking notes, go back and circle teacher at the start. Dive down into the scripture that has Martha and Mary, down about verse 39. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet. Circle Lord. Couple verses down, circle Lord. Couple verses down, circle Lord. The address is very important. One calls him rabbi, one calls him teacher, one calls him Lord. Second note, if you're taking notes. First story, first illustration, is an all-male cast. Second story, second illustration, is an all-female cast. That's very Lucan. Luke will do something with males. He will do something with females. Third note. The ones that do are the outcasts, are the marginalized, are the ones that are considered on the edge. They're the ones that do life as it's lived in the age. So we begin with the first illustration. Remember the lawyer has said, who is my neighbor? It's a question of boundaries. I I, want to know, okay, I understand that the idea is that we love God with everything that we are and have, and that we love our neighbors ourselves, but, but what boundaries still exist? How do I isolate those that shouldn't be in? How do I keep them separate? How do I keep them apart? Jesus doesn't answer that question. His question, his answer is this. How do you love? And so he gives the illustration. He says, a man was going down. Notice that a man was going down. No identification. We have no idea uh, anything about him. We don't know his name. We don't know whether he's a Levi. We don't know if he's a priest. We don't know what he is. Just a generic man. But in need. Man was going down. From Jerusalem to Jericho, he fell in the hands of robbers. They stripped him, they beat him. And he went away, leaving him half dead. Now by a chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him, he passed by the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when, notice it, he saw him, He was moved with pity, and he healed him. He bandaged him. He bandaged the wounds, poured oil and wine on them, put him on his animal, brought him to the inn, took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I'll repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think, Mr. Lawyer, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers. And the lawyer wisely says, well, the the one who showed him mercy, can't say the word Samaritan, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. The ones you would expect to show mercy 
because they know the law, the Levite, the priest, but they follow the rule, they follow the regulation, pass him by. Perhaps because, who knows, another rule takes precedent. You don't want to touch somebody with blood. You don't want to make yourself impure. We don't know why. All we know is the ones that were expected to extend mercy did not. The one who was totally unexpected to extend mercy, the marginalized, the outcast, the one who is excluded from the entire social system of Israel. Because he is moved with pity, draws from the heart, and acts in life of the kingdom. That's story one. Now let's move to story two. As they're going on their way, that's Jesus and the disciples, he enters a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks, and so she came to him and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. Who shows a heart in total devotion to God. We don't get it from the priest, we don't get it from the Levite, we get it from a woman. Whew. Isn't that something? There's one word we didn't look at up at the front. It's a word inheritance. Inheritance in the Jewish worldview, in the Jewish thought, was always intended to be whole. Oh, it could be divided. But it was always intended to be kept intact. Because this way, the heirs could have life in common. Bottom line, Inheritance was intended always to unify, not divide. It's not surprising that we, we picture the kingdom, we picture the gospel as an inheritance. It's not surprising in Acts 2 we find the community of the fellowship of the followers of the way of Christ having life in common. We're intended to live in whole. Martha. Mary says, Martha, Martha, you're distracted. You're divided in heart. Oh, you're doing the right things. You're doing the things that you know that are correct, and I don't fault you for that. But there is one here. Her name is Mary. She's doing it in whole. There's no division there. Life. How do you live it? Life in the kingdom, how do you live it? Do you live it according to the lawyer? 
or do you live it in the way of Christ? So what do we learn? This is the point I hope to leave with you. Life in the kingdom age, the age that has already come, can be and often is lived in two different ways. One is the way of the lawyer. This way shapes the community of the faithful as an institution or as an organization that is to be submissive to the various passages and doctrinal interpretations that buttress preconceived traditions and or respond to various social conditions. And I think what happens when we choose this way to live as a church I believe that Christ can become the symbol of our activity, but not its life. And when that happens, it becomes very possible to say prayers, but never pray. We can have strong and emphatic beliefs, but never believe. We can come to church, but not belong to Christ. We can serve the church and never serve the Lord. And I think one may appear to have a good conscience and a fine spirit on the outside, but actually be bereft of the Holy Spirit on the inside. And as Luke will portray later in the Gospel, we may even become like Judas. We meet with a master as part of his so-called inner circle, but when push comes to shove, we betray him in word and in deed. The narrative of Luke-Acts takes you down a totally different road. It takes you to the way of Christ. That's, that was what we were known as initially, the followers of the way. But it comes not in the form anticipated by the lawyer or any pre-Christian Jewish dream of how Israel was to be liberated or the powers overthrown and the true worship of God was to be reinstated. No, Acts, Acts insists that the lawyer's long-awaited, long-anticipated liberation happened through Jesus and the Spirit. The powers that enslaved Israel and those that, excluded, that, that were excluded from that community were overthrown by the power of the cross by the word of God, and by the testimony of his believers. The powerful presence of the living God was unveiled, not in the Jerusalem temple, but uniquely fused into the community of believers. I believe that the gospel of Christ, from its very beginning, was never intended to be viewed simply as a mechanism through which faulty humans could be rescued from impending judgment, nor was the gospel packaged to be a winning coupon by which we are given a pass to go to heaven. I believe the gospel, in line with the end goal desired by God of absolute oneness, points toward and offers reconciled, restored, renewed, redeemed relational unity. And it introduces this new realm where we, as previously faulty humans, by the redemptive work of Christ on the cross, can be rehumanized by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. It enables and empowers Christ's followers to once again serve as God's agents in bringing his love, his wisdom, his creative delight to bear afresh upon the world and once again redeemed, renewed humans 
become word-in-the-flesh people, worshiping the living God, witnessing to others about him. And I believe the gospel message summons us to live as a completely renewed human species. Not only as restored image bearers of God and his son, but as temple people, as disciples of Christ, as living stones being built up into a new priesthood who truly reflect God in Christ's creative and redemptive image back into the world. And then reflect back the results to the creator. We the church, followers of the way, the bride of Christ, the last Eve, if you will, are wonderfully privileged people. We're embedded in the last Adam, Jesus Christ. We're no longer encumbered by our perverted attempts to recreate ourselves in our own image, instead as residents of this new sphere of being, which is the kingdom of God. We're to lovingly submit our wills to the leading, to the prompting, to the empowering spirit of God's holiness. And in so doing, we recommune, we reestablish that connection, that connection in love and in power that we have with the creator of the universe. It's a connection that we, re, that we short-circuited by our little flawed attempts to recreate ourselves in our own image, in the image of the dust of Adam. And when we think of ourselves this way, we can return to being an angled mirror We can learn again to reflect God's grace and God's love into the world and we can reflect the world's praise of gratitude and proper service back to God in words and deeds. And when we do this, we help ourselves and other people comprehend the true place of God and humans. This, I suggest, is our true expression of worship through witness from the heart the whole heart, the softened heart, the heart undivided as true followers of the way. There's a Talmudic story that goes something like this. The tale is about three men in a boat. Suddenly one of the men begins to drill a hole under his seat. His friends immediately plead with him to stop and he says, what are you worried about? I'm just drilling under my seat. And the moral drawn by the rabbis has been repeated again and again. We're all in the same boat. And I would argue it's a sailboat. It's not powered by the engine of our own ability, skills, or organization but by the wind that is the Spirit of God, the life-giving and sustaining power of the Holy Spirit that indwells. I want to close with a priestly blessing. It goes like this. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine His face upon you and give grace unto you. May the Lord's countenance be upon you and give you peace. Amen.